invite your attention this morning to James chapter 5. Because of our reading schedule through the New Testament and our preaching schedule along with that, we're just hitting the first and last chapters of James. I know you will benefit from the practical helps that James gives on living the life of a disciple, and I hope you'll return to this book many times. Last week, uh, from James chapter 1, we looked at how to get through trials, and now in chapter 5, beginning of verse 7, James cycles back to that starting point, the theme of suffering. Now, we have all suffered to some degree, and uh, that's, we know that's part of the human experience. We've all been hurt. We have been uh, mistreated, misunderstood, could have been a, an intolerable work situation or fellow employee, a marital conflict we've been taken advantage of. Uh, we've been even betrayed. Uh, any myriad of painful experiences. And our, our natural man, when that happens, especially when it happens at the hand of another, our, our natural man wants to retaliate against those who cause us suffering, to repay evil for evil, to hold on to a grudge or to become bitter. But James is going to show us a better way. He's going to answer the question this morning, how do I react correctly when I've been treated incorrectly? You're going to see four commands in this first section that we're looking at this morning. He's going to tell us to be patient, to strengthen our hearts, not to grumble, not to swear. Let's jump in in James chapter 5, reading verse 7 through verse 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Well, he starts, and this is a theme we've seen before, he starts with this admonition in verse 7, be patient. That word patient comes from two Greek words. The first word means far or distance or long. The second word means heat, rage, and anger. So he's saying you need to be long or, or far distant from heat, rage, and anger. Literally, you need to be long-tempered or long in control during your suffering. You, you shouldn't be easily losing it, but you should be able to keep heat and rage and anger far from you. It's the idea of being non-retaliatory, that you're not looking for the opportunity to, to strike back when you suffer from the action of others. And, and that happens when you're able to keep your spirit in check, and you can't keep your spirit in check unless the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer is in control. Daily, you have to make the choice to let the Spirit of God be in control, and as you do that, then you're able to keep your spirit in control or in check. He says, be patient until the coming of the Lord. Just a reminder to those he's writing, look, the, Lord, the Lord's coming. You don't have to worry about vengeance. You don't have to worry about retaliation. You leave that to the Lord. The Lord is coming to take action on your behalf. But remember also, the Lord is coming to hold you accountable. Now, he uses the illustration of a farmer. James and Jude were both farmers, so this is pretty natural for them to use that illustration. He says, look at, look at the farmer and how patient he is. And he talks about the early and late rains. In Israel, 
The land is very dry, very rocky. At this time, there was no real means of irrigation. And so the farmer was dependent on the early rain to water the seeds that was ger- would germinate and on the late rain to water the plants that would grow and bear fruit. And in between those rains, the farmer had to be patient. He knew that fruit was coming. He had to wait on that. Now, James is really saying two things to us here in that illustration. First of all, reminding us that God is patient. Yes, we will go through suffering, and we will go through hostility, and we will experience all manner of suffering because of the evil uh, of humans, but God is allowing that for a season because he's waiting on fruit. Second Peter 3, 9, God is not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So God is patient allowing that to happen, and James is also telling us, look, you need to be patient because God is working. You need to trust the fact that he's working. He's not doing nothing in this time where he's calling you to be patient. Verse 8, how, how are you to be patient? He says you need to establish your heart. What does that mean? It means to strengthen your heart. It's kind of like the idea of why we do aerobic exercise or cardio training. The reason you do those things is to push your heart, to stretch your heart so that your heart becomes stronger and it has greater endurance. So James is saying, look, you need to do the same thing to your spiritual heart. You need to strengthen it so you'll have more endurance. How do you do that? You focus on faith and you focus on hope. When you're in the midst of suffering, you're in the midst of difficulty, you can't see the benefit of God using your suffering if you don't have faith, if if you can't trust him. When you're in the middle of, of suffering, it's difficult to be patient if you lack hope. Last week, we, from chapter 1, we talked about the fact that you have to be careful in the suffering not to look at the present, not to look at the circumstances, but look to the future and look to the hope, the eternal hope that you have. You know, I'm sure there are times for all of us that we wish for a life without difficulty, we wish for a life without suffering, we wish life were much easier, but that's not healthy for our faith. We need tension. It's the tension that brings strength and brings growth. Great example of that is what we've learned through the years through the space program and specifically from astronauts' bodies when they're in space, they're at zero gravity. We've discovered that when they're at zero gravity, there's no tension on their muscles, no tension on their body. They're not getting strengthened. In fact, every week they lose up to 5% of their muscle mass. Astronauts who are off on a, on a longer journey when they came back would be significantly weakened because of that loss of mass. So we need to be strengthened. We need to be under tension. We need to have that in our lives in order to grow. He goes on in verse 8. This is the second time in two verses he said this. He reminds us again, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, you know, we've talked about this before. The New Testament believers lived as if the coming of the Lord was imminent. They believed it could be any day, and so they lived appropriately in that way. Now, it hasn't happened. It's been over 2,000 years. It's unlikely that it's going to be 2,000 more, but we don't know the exact time. We have to live as they did, as if the Lord is coming any day. Wouldn't it be great if we knew the exact date, if he, if he gave us a date so we could be sure that we were ready? Wouldn't really matter, would it? We are by nature, especially spiritually, we are procrastinators. Even if we knew the date, we'd probably wait until the last moment and hurriedly try to get prepared. I've told this story to some of you, but when I was in junior high and high school, I typically got home from school every day about an hour, hour and 15 minutes ahead of my mother. She's a school teacher, single mom, uh, would usually arrive home if there were no meetings between 3.45, 4 o'clock every day, but 3.45 was a pretty good um, average time. One thing I was not supposed to do when I got home every day was to watch television. That's exactly what I did every day. 
I would turn on the television, and I would, uh, the, the den was far enough away from a window where I could see the drive, so sometimes I'd kind of get between the two and keep an eye on the drive. I could also hear, if I kept the window cracked, the gravel at the end of the driveway if someone pulled in. But I would watch television pretty safely till about 3.30, 3.35, and then I'd begin this process of watching. And pretty close to 3.45, and sometimes I wasn't careful, didn't watch closely enough, that car would turn in the drive. And I would run and turn off the television. Oh, I didn't mention this. We still had black and white. My mom was single on a school teacher salary. So do, do all of y'all know what black and white is? You know what I'm saying? Okay. If you've never seen a black and white TV, when you turn a black and white TV off, there's one little problem after you turn it off if you're trying to be sneaky and not let anyone know you're watching TV. There's this little dot in the middle of the screen. And I'm going to tell you some of the most fervent prayer times in my entire life was that that dot would be gone before she walked in the door. Listen, it wouldn't do any good if we knew the exact time he's telling us, look, the Lord is coming. You need to be patient if you're suffering, but you don't need to be lazy. You need to recognize that Jesus is coming. Don't be caught doing nothing, and certainly don't be caught doing things that you shouldn't be doing. You need to use the time wisely. And if you're suffering, that time is going to allow your heart to be strengthened. Verse 9, he says, don't grumble. Don't grumble. You know, misery loves company. If you're suffering, if you're struggling, you don't want to see other believers sailing on smooth waters. And if you're not careful, you start looking around and you grumble and you speak against others grudgingly. And he says, don't do that. You're bringing judgment on yourself. Listen, we need each other. We're all going to go through times that we're struggling and times that, that, we're, that we're not struggling. That's why Paul said in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We, we need each other. We need to be there for each other. And the world watches how we respond, especially when things aren't going our way. So be careful that you're not grumbling because someone else has it better than you. Verses 10 and 11, he says, look at the example of the prophets and of Job. The, the prophets, you read through the prophets in the Old Testament, the prophets suffered all kinds of hatred and hostility, even from their own people, but they were steadfast. Job suffered incredible loss, but he was steadfast. And, and in his steadfastness, he saw that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. God saw everything that was happening in Job's life, and when it was all said and done, Job was rewarded. He experienced the compassion and the mercy of the Lord. And James is saying here, look, look at God's track record. Remember that he is caring, that he is compassionate, that he is merciful. He's not forgotten you. He's not going to forget you. Strengthen your heart. Don't grumble. Look at verse 12. This is kind of odd stuck in here. And James does this a lot. As you've read through James, he kind of skips around a little bit. But, but really, even though it's, it's kind of an odd, it's a new subject, it does fit in, in thinking about the hostility we go through. He says, above all, new subject, above all that I've already told you, don't swear. Now, that's not profanity that he's talking about. When he talks about swearing, he's talking about making an oath. And specifically, he's talking about not swearing, not making an oath in the name of the Lord. People then would not dare use God's name as you hear it used now. And James is saying, look, is it appropriate to make an oath before the Lord? At times, yes, it is. When you, if you're married, when you stood at that altar, if you had a Christian wedding and you stood at that altar and you made your vows to your mate, you were making those vows before the Lord. 
He's part of that covenant relationship. But James here is talking about the fact that, that the Pharisees, the, the Jewish religious leaders in that day, they would make frivolous oaths. Instead of saying, uh, I promise this is going to happen and I'm swearing it to you in, in God's name, because they knew they couldn't do that, they would make oaths on the temple. I swear by the temple or I swear by the altar in the temple. And they knew in making those oaths that it meant nothing. They were just making frivolous oaths. They had no intent of keeping their word. James is saying here, look, you just need to speak truthfully and keep your word. And, and what it has to do with suffering is that he realizes sometimes in, in, in hostile situations, we're going to say things we shouldn't say. But primarily, James is just saying to the believer, the whole book is about what the life of the believer should look like. He's saying to the believer, just speak truthfully and keep your word. And, and this, this Verse 12, stuck in the middle here, this command fits the entire book. Why? James has been talking about a living faith. He's been saying this is what a living faith looks like. Think about the subjects he's covered. He's talked about patience and suffering. He's talked about temptation. He's talked about how to respond properly to the poor. He's talked about that your faith is revealed in your works. He's talked about proper speech. He's talked about being humble and, and submitted to God. He's talked about self-control over your mouth and here specifically truthfulness. You ever had someone say, hey, for real now? Or listen, I, honestly, this is the truth. What does that make you think about everything else they've said? James is saying, look, a person of faith needs to consistently speak the truth, no matter what situation he finds himself in. Well, James is, is wrapping up his letter here in chapter 5. You could summarize this next section, verses 13 through 18, in just two words. Just pray. By the way, do you know that James was nicknamed Old Camel Knees? His knees looked like the knees of the camel. They were baggy. The skin was all scrunched up because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. Look what he says in verse 13 through 18. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Well, James has talked about suffering, about trials, and James has brought us to the point of understanding, look, God is working helping us say, you, you can see his hand, you can know that he's strengthening your faith. Sometimes your trials or suffering are brought on by your sin. It's discipline from the Lord for sin. Sometimes he's helping prevent sin in your life. Sometimes the trials are just to remind you that this is not our home. And so what James is saying here now is, look, you may know, you may, under, you may understand that God is working for your good. You may realize that these momentary light afflictions produce an eternal weight of glory. You may know that, but still be discouraged and still be depressed, and you just can't get yourself out of the pit. You're, you're stuck in the mire. You're wondering if you can hang on. And the first thing he says in verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. 
Honestly, sometimes we get so far down in the pit because when the suffering, when the trial begins, we try to figure things out on our own. We try to do it our own way. We don't look to the Lord. James says the minute you're in suffering, you should pray. It's very simple, and it's very straightforward. The word, the word prayer here means to plead continuously. It's an ongoing thing. When you're in suffering, you should continually be coming for the Lord and pleading to the Lord in the midst of your suffering. Joseph Scrivener, I don't know if this is the passage he was thinking about, but Joseph Scrivener wrote some words that really express what James is saying here in chapter 5 and verse 13. I think you probably know the words. What a friend we have. Sing it with me. In Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Pay attention right here. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. We forfeit peace. We bear on our own burdens he didn't intend for us to bear simply because when we're suffering, we're not not praying. James is writing to believers, Jewish believers, Jews who have come to faith in Christ. They're living in a, in a Gentile world. You remember in chapter 1, they're scattered in the Gentile world. They're facing all manner of hostility. They're not being paid adequate wages for the work that they do. Some are being dragged into court. Some are being beaten. Some are being in prison. Some are seeing relatives executed. And the load is more than they can bear. The suffering he's talking about here in verse 13 is not talking about the physical pain, although there may have been some of that, but it's talking about their spiritual exhaustion. They're weak, they're wounded, and so he admonishes them to pray, to continually pray. I'll not spend time on this, but you see the side note there. He says if if he is cheerful, not suffering at this moment, cheerful, he should sing praises. You know, he's saying if you're well, if you're well in, in thought and soul and, and spirit, you need to be praising God. God is the one who is giving you this time where you can be cheerful. And, and as you're praising God, recognize that you need to be sharing the love with those who are struggling. As you look at your own situation and you're, you're healthy and you're well spiritually, you should be looking to the one who is struggling. Well, what about the one whose suffering is so great he can't even get up? He's a, he's a fallen soldier. He can't rise on his own. James goes on in verse 14, and, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. Verse 14 is a tough passage to interpret, 14 and 15 and 16. It, it appears he's talking about those who are physically sick. In fact, some, some would take this passage and say this is kind of the recipe for, for physical healing. The elders come and they anoint the person with oil and, and they pray over them. Oil was a healing balm in biblical times and it was also symbolic of the Holy Spirit. Now, that is a good pattern. When someone is sick, it's fine to call on the elders to pray for them. But, but the word 
this word, if it's about physical sickness, it doesn't fit the context that James is, is talking about here. In verse 13, he's talking about the suffering of the soul. He hasn't suddenly switched gears and talked about physical suffering. Verse 13, he says, if you're suffering, if you have uh, difficulty in your soul, you should pray and plead continuously. But what happens? What if your suffering is so great, you become so weak spiritually, you can't even pray? You ever been there? That's what he's addressing in verse 14. When he talks about the one who is sick, there are several um, Greek words used throughout the New Testament for sick. This particular word occasionally refers to spirit, uh, physical sickness, but primarily the meaning of this word is someone who is weak and feeble and without strength. And it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans and 1st 2nd Corinthians and, and Luke uses in Acts. And each time they use this word, they're referring not to physical, but to spiritual weakness. So there's nothing in this passage that says he's now suddenly talking about physical sickness. The context is tremendous oppression spiritually. It's, it's suffering. It's trials that lead to the sickness of the soul that lead to spiritual weakness. So look, here's what he's saying. If you're suffering, pray. Verse 14, if you don't even have the strength to pray for yourself, if you're too weak from the struggle, go to those who are spiritually strong and let them pray for you. Now, he says it's the elders of the church. What is that? That's the pastors. That's the, the, the leaders. That's the deacons. That's the people uh, in the church that, that are proven as leaders. They're proven strong. They've learned to endure. They know the word. And let me just kind of hit the pause button here and tell you this. Church leaders are not always strong. There are times that even leaders need people in the body to come alongside and pray for them. Our leaders in this church have been through a very difficult week this last week. We're, we're not perfect. We're just like you are. But he says when you're so struggling, so suffering, you can't even pray, call for the elders. The word call means to call alongside. You remember two weeks ago in Hebrews when we were talking about the race and that great cloud of witnesses and how it's like you're on the track or maybe even started the race and they come alongside you and they speak words of encouragement to you. It's that same picture. It's to call alongside. And I'll tell you, that is our primary job and responsibility here. So many times people think, well, you know, I, I would have called one of our pastors, but they're so busy doing ministry. Listen, our ministry is not all the activities. Our ministry is people. We all the time around here, you can ask any of our staff, complete this sentence, people are, and they will say, our business. That's what we're here for. And so he says you need to call on the leaders. What about the anointing? Well, it's not... It's a different word. There's an anointing in Scripture. It's a ceremonial anointing, much like what happened with David when he was anointed as the king of Israel. This is a different word. It's a very common word. And, and the, the word anointing here is like um, rubbing oil or polish in, in, into wood, into a piece of furniture. It's like rubbing oil into a piece of leather and just working it in. And, and the idea of oil, oil back then and still today is, is used to 
uh, rub into dry skin. Back then, oil was mixed with wine, and, and they would take that oil and wine, kind of like a cream, and they would put it on wounds. It would kill infection. It would, it would soften scabs. It would promote healing. It's kind of what the Good Samaritan did when he found the man who'd been beaten and left for dead, and it says that he bound up his wounds. Now, some of these people, because of the, the suffering they'd been through, some of them probably had actual physical wounds, and certainly the elders, if they went to them, would have been willing to to, to um, help, to apply balm. They wouldn't have hesitated to do that, but that's not the picture here. The real picture is, is kind of a metaphor when he talks about anointing them with oil. It's to soothe the pain of a weary soul. The elders are to come and to bring comfort and to refresh the person and to help renew their strength. It's the same ministry of comfort and encouragement the Holy Spirit provides to the believer in his time of need. And what's happening is the elders, the leaders of the church, those who are stronger in their faith, are to go and provide comfort and encouragement. And then they're to pray. Look at verse 15. The prayer of faith will save, and the word there, save, is not save as in salvation, but restore. The prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick, the one who is weary and feeble and tired and exhausted and fatigued in his soul. This Greek word here in Scripture, sick, in the secular Greek language, this exact same word was used to talk about a soldier who had fought so many battles that he was completely spent. He had nothing left. So the elders, spiritually strong, they come. They administer encouragement and, and comfort. They pray in faith, and what happens? The Lord restores him to health, gives him strength and vitality. But what about the sin in verse 15? If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, that's not talking about salvation. It's talking about the believer. If he has committed sins. Well, when you're weak spiritually, you're very vulnerable to doubt and to disbelief of the Lord God. When you're weak spiritually, you're very vulnerable to all sorts of temptation. So when those elders come and when they, they pray for you and encourage you and support you, they're also praying over that sin that you will be forgiven and restored. Listen, when a, when a member of the body is in sin, we're not supposed to go off and leave them. We're not supposed to shoot our wounded. We're not supposed to shun them because they're living in sin. When a member of the body is in sin, we're to try to bring them to restoration. That's the role of pastors, yes. But don't miss this. It's not just pastors. Look at verse 16. It's the strong praying for the weak is a ministry for the whole congregation. He says that we're to go to each other. We're to help each other. Our, our, relationships our relationships in the body are to be relationships of mutual honesty, mutual honesty and integrity and support and, support and, and confidentiality. That we should be able to go to anyone in the body and say, I need your help. I'm struggling here. I'm, I'm suffering here. That's how relationships should work. And the problem is, you get into trouble, whether it's sin or, or, or suffering, and, and you think, well, somebody's going to think I'm not a very strong believer, or somebody's going to think I'm not walking with the Lord, and you, you isolate yourselves. We've all seen those nature videos on YouTube where a, 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 a herd of gazelle, and along comes a bunch of, uh, of, of cheetahs, a pack of cheetahs, and what do they do? They isolate one from the herd because then that gazelle becomes easy prey. Don't do that. Don't isolate yourself from the body. He says the prayer of the righteous person 
has great power as it is working. That's why you go to someone who's strong, someone who's walking with the Lord. Now, you know, the prospect of that, if that really happened in a broad way in this body, the prospect of that has some of you frightened. You think, wow, if somebody came to me and they were struggling, I, 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 don't, I, don't, know. I, don't, I don't know what I would say to them. I don't know what counsel I would give them. Listen, if you're in the Word, you know the proper counsel. But you don't need to worry about what to say or the counsel, the advice that you would give. You just need to pray. And the neat thing about that is within the body where we're all working and serving together is that one day you might need that and they can reciprocate. Verse 17 and 18, a good teacher always illustrates and he uses this illustration when he talks about the, the prayer of a righteous man having much power. He uses this illustration of Elijah. You remember the story in 1 Kings 17 and 18, the people of Israel were worshiping uh, the Baals. They had stopped worshiping the true and living God and they began to worship Baal. Baal is a fertility God. And God said, okay, you want to worship a fertility God so you can have abundant crops and livestock? Guess what? And he has Elijah proclaim, no rain. For three and a half years, there's no rain. Everything dies. They can't even save most of the livestock. And then God sends Elijah. They have that contest on Mount Carmel between the true and living God and the God of the Baals. And God proves himself. And the people confess the Lord is God. And when the people have been turned back, Elijah prays again and rain comes. And it's a perfect illustration of what he's saying we're trying to do in the life of someone who is weary and worn out and dried up. What happened? Elijah prayed. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. He prayed, and, and that land that was dry and parched and wasted and unproductive, when he prayed, it brought refreshment and restoration and joy. It's the same picture here. Look, there are people in the body that they're going through suffering. They're going through difficulty. They're dry. They're parched. They're wasted. They're unproductive. They're, they're, they're just at a point where they can't get themselves back on course. And as we pray for them, we can bring refreshment and restoration and joy. We're living in increasingly difficult times. We need each other. We need to be a fellowship and a body that is working together and helping each other. And we need to be people of prayer. That's what's going to get us through. Well, I'm done. However, there's some of you in the room that need every blank filled in. Nothing left undone. You see that there are two verses left here. So I don't want to frustrate you. Look at these last two verses. New subject. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. He's switching gears again, but it's a very fitting ending because the whole book of James, is, is the whole letter is evangelistic. He's laying out in James what it looks like to have a living, vibrant faith, and as he does that, he's showing sinners the error of their ways. They, they may think they have faith, but it's a, it's a dead faith, and so he's laying out this picture so that they can examine their lives. This epistle written by James was written to the assembly. It was written to the believers who, who would gather. But then is now there were some within the assembly who identified with the church or identified with Christ, but inwardly they were lost. They weren't living this life that he describes. To put it in Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3, 5, they had the appearance of godliness, but their lives denied its power. 
James is saying, look, there, there, there were people. You know people who used to, to hang around the assembly or hang around the congregation and they've just kind of dropped out and disappeared. You, you know people who claim to belong to you, to be part of your body, to belong to Christ, but they're living in habitual sin. They've strayed from the truth. What's he saying? Look, they said they believed, but they reject the will of God. They don't obey the truth. In, in fact, look at the word. He says that these people are sinners. Listen, can I tell you that if you're in Christ, if you've come to faith in Christ, you've truly committed your life to Christ as Savior and Lord, you're not a sinner. Do you still sin? Sure, we still sin. When we do, we confess and we repent. But the characteristic of your life is not that you go on living in habitual sin with no regard for the Word of God and the truth of God. So your life is not characterized by the word sinner. But he says these people are sinners. They're people who are within our context, within our circle, but they don't know the Lord. Now here's what I want you to catch. Look at the way these sinners are going to be reached. What does he say? Whoever brings him back. Now, if you've, if you've got a hard copy of the Word of God and you take notes, you might want to underline or circle the word whoever. You know whoever is? It's not just the pastor. Could be. Not just the Sunday school teacher or the deacon. Could be. Whoever is anyone. Anyone can bring this person who's wandered from the truth back. Who should it be? It should be the person who knows the, the individual the best. It should be the person who's able to see the danger and recognize, look, this person is not walking the walk. They're not in the faith. That person should seek to bring the wanderer back, the one who's walked away from the truth. Well, how are you going to do that? You're going to go to that person and express concern about the fruit or the, the lack of fruit you see in their life. You're going to speak the truth. Look, Scripture says that those who love him obey him. But here's the most important thing. This is the speed bump. This is the bump you got to get over if you're going to do what James tells us to do. you got to get to the point you're more worried about the fact that they have rejected Christ than you are worried about the fact that they might reject you when you go to them. That's the hard part, isn't it? This person's a friend, this person's someone you've known for years, maybe you work with, maybe even in your family, and to go to them and say, look, you've wandered from the truth, I'm concerned about your eternity. That's difficult because they may get angry and they may reject you, but it's more important that you're concerned and worried about their rejection of Christ. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, described what has happened for us who have come to Christ. We have been reconciled. God, through Christ, reconciled us to God. That picture is there are two opposing, two warring parties, and a mediator, that's Jesus, brings them together and reconciles them to right relationship. That's what God has done for us in Christ. And in chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says that God has reconciled you, and then, believer, he has given you the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we're ambassadors for Christ. You're a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, and your ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. James in chapter 5 has told us, open your eyes. Open your eyes to the believer around you who is weary and exhausted. Open your eyes to the one who's in your midst 
who has wandered from the truth, has turned from the truth, hasn't truly believed, and then respond as the body of Christ should respond.